turn to as our, our kids go to uh, ch- uh, kids' churches this morning. Uh, it's the last book in the Bible. And so if you can find Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, uh, just go all the way to the back. Don't go so far that you get to the pictures or the, uh, the maps or some of the concordances you might have. Uh, but find Revelation in Revelation chapter 1. And I encourage you, if, if you've not made a habit to bring your Bible to church, be sure to bring your Bible to church because we're not going to be putting all those verses in, in the outline. If you can't find one, if you didn't bring one this morning, there should be one in a chair in front of you. So everybody get a Bible, grab a Bible, or if you're using uh, one of those uh, smartphones or tablets, you can use that as well. But we really want to uh, see what God has said, uh, because really he's the one that we want to follow in terms of uh, what uh, he wants us to know. Uh, as we begin the book of Revelation, it's interesting, I've, uh, I've, I've preached this in, in another church for an extended period of time, and we went through a fairly lengthy series on it, and one of the things that as you begin a, a series in the book of Revelation, there's all kinds of expectations that people might have in terms of uh, what they're going to understand and what they're going to learn. Uh, some come from a variety of, of experiences already in this book. Some people are coming to this rather as novices. They really know nothing about what the, the Bible says about future events. And, and in the midst of all that, I, I want us to, to really realize that, that God has given us this book not only to maybe some understand some things that are, um, are strange or mystifying or unclear to a variety of people. But he, he wants us to fall more and more in love with him. And not only fall more and more in love with him, he wants us to come, come to the point where we trust him more with our lives now. It, it's not so much about being preoccupied with future speculation, but with being conviction that God has our immediate moment in his hands. And so we will, we will hope to make that the emphasis, is that we'll become more in love with the author of this book and more trusting that if he has the distant, whatever, dist, whatever time there is between what happens next in terms of what's outlined in this book, uh, is he has just as much in control what happens right now. I, I was reading a, a quote by C.S. Lewis a number of years ago, and C.S. Lewis said that that's amazing as he looked over history, and particularly history of the church, but particularly in just history in, um, in general, that he wrote that he's convinced that the people who make the most difference in this world are the people who are most preoccupied with the world to come. Now, that seems to be the opposite of how we would naturally think. In fact, some have said to um, religious types that many people are so heavenly minded they are no what earthly good but his experience is that particularly for christians if we are so preoccupied with our little world now and not seeing the grander perspective of god's plan for the ages that we'll be so narrow in our focus, we'll only be concerned about what reflects to our life. And really, the lives that really matter are the people who give their lives to others and not just themselves. So it's not so matter of simply having more time to do the things here on earth if you're not thinking about the world that comes. But if you're thinking about the world that comes, it will change the priorities of the things that you do now. You'll see what really matters. And not be so overwhelmed by the challenges of this life. 
And so as we begin today, I want us to make that kind of the focal point of, of how we see this book. God does want us to live much more productively and with a focus on the eternal if we know what God has done. Now, as we begin, I want you to understand that this this book is really uh, a book about God. And even more particularly, it's a a book about Jesus. Uh, I had a deaconess uh, ask me a number of years ago, when when am I going to do a series on the book of Revelations? And I said, well, I've never read that book. He said, well, you've never read the book of Revelations? No, I've never read the book of Revelations. I have read the book of Revelation, but not the book of Revelations. And some of you might have named this book that way as well. And you might say, well, that's kind of, it's kind of being a little picky here. But really, I think that's significant because this is the book of Revelation. It's a book about the revelation or unveiling, the apocalypses, if you've ever heard that term. It's, it's the... It's making God and Jesus clear. And, and, and we will now begin to see Jesus, hopefully, in a much fuller way than we've ever seen him before. I, I remember hearing a story about this little boy. He was in a Sunday school class, and, and he was rather young. And so part of the Sunday school class, they got the chance to, to draw pictures or to uh, um, just be a little bit artistic. And maybe it was to give the teacher a little bit of sanity break or whatever it was. So this, this little boy, he was feverishly, you know, drawing and coloring and doing all kinds of stuff. And so the teacher came over and said, well, well what are you doing? He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she said, well, don't you know that no one has seen God? To which he said, well, they will after they look at my picture. <laughs> you know, the book of Revelation is, is a book in which God gives us a picture of Jesus. And it's a picture a little bit different than we might draw if we only read the first 26 books in the New Testament. Now, if we read them carefully, I think we would see Jesus in a, in a bigger, more, less limited way. But, but when we see Jesus, and there's a reason we see him this way, as coming as the, as the humble servant as the one that was meek and mild, the, the one who was so approachable, and people, particularly those who weren't religious, felt that they were not being judged in a harsh way, and they could come into his presence and, and be honest about how much they felt they had fallen short in, in knowing a holy God. And, and we see him in his tenderness. We see him in his kindness. We, we see him as, as the one that often the disciples were shocked when, when he, would, he would put his arms around children and, and, and they thought, well, what are you wasting your time with them for? And, and so we, we really see the heart of Jesus, the compassion. We, we even hear of him weeping bitterly over those who are far from him. And even as, as he was taken into that period of time in which he would be tried and then he would be mocked and he would be scourged and taken to the cross. And as one of his disciples, even Peter, 
took up a sword to defend them. He said, he said this, this is not how I will establish my kingdom with a sword. And when people somehow compare religions, you know, well, everybody's really basically the same. You're religious or you're religious. Everything, everybody just basically believes the same. Jesus never converts people's hearts with a sword. He penetrates them with the truth and the grace that's found in the character of God. And yet, when we see the book of Revelation, we begin to see him. Not simply the one who came to rescue us or to save us. But he's going to come in all his power and glory and majesty. And everyone will fall down in the presence of almighty God. And so we need to wrestle with those two pictures of God. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's loving. He's forgiving. He's kind. But as C.S. Lewis said, he, he, the lion, he was so gracious, but he's not tame. When Jesus comes again, he'll come in power. And that's what we'll see in the book of Revelation. If you have your outline this morning, and my, and my message is going to be broken up this way. The, 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 the introduction is going to be long, and the message is going to be short, all right? And the, the, out, the, the introduction could be even longer because there's so many nuances with this book. As I mentioned to you, the book of Revelation is the last book in the book, right? And this is a pretty big book, and if you take all the parts of the book, there are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And when you read the book of Revelation, singular, you read the book of Revelation, it's like a lot of books. In many ways, you can understand the Bible. The Bible is written for our ability to hear through the reading gate what God has said to us. But it does help at times when you read the end of a book, like any book, to know what happened what? Before. Um, there's one thing that frustrates me more than anything else. If I, if I you know, I plan to go to uh, a you know, movie with Alice or whatever like that, and somehow we get to the movie what? Late. Because sometimes if you miss the beginning, you can't quite catch up. Because what's, what's going on here? What, what, what's the whole issue here? So there is, a, there is a place where understanding the other 65 books helps you understand the 66th book. Uh, some who like to count verses and count approaches of how this book is written said there's 500 allusions to the Old Testament. Well, there aren't even that many verses in the book of Revelation. I think there's 404, and then if you count... Uh, verses that go back to the Old Testament, 278 of them make reference to the Old Testament. And, and so as we go and, and go through this book, and, and, and let me tell you that there are all kinds of perspectives on this book, and I'll share a little about this in our introduction. And, and so in the midst of the complexity, we also want to keep it simple. And, and you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand this book, but it does help to know what God's plan is. And we're going to try to see that. 
But I, but I want to begin at the beginning about what's most important. The beginning is God wants to make a revelation. He wants to make an unveiling. He, he wants us to see him more clearly. And we talked in our series, so this is all by way of review, and this might be on the test, is that we need to ask ourselves, well, who is God? Remember we asked that question, who is God? You know, God is one. There's only one God, and we're going to see this in a passage in a moment. And so as we understand who God is, there only is one God, and he is the one who reveals himself to us. But the Bible also says that God is one, and he's three in person, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so we always want to remember that as, as we look in God's book, that God reveals him in his oneness, but also in his threeness. God is one, but three in person, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's who is God, but, but what is God? And we're going to see this now in Jesus, but, we're, but we, we took an historical definition of God in our series of Knowing God, and, and the Shorter Westminster Catechism put it this, puts it this way, God is spirit. And even just stopping there, remember as we, we talked about it, that we, we, never need, we never should limit God and, and how awesome and, and how much he is. He's not restricted like we are. God is spirit. He's everywhere. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's unchangeable in his being. And, and so that's important to remember again, as we, as we see a picture of Jesus in, in the first you know, 26 books of the New Testament, he doesn't all of a sudden change in the 27th. He's always been this. And, and if you see some of the snapshots in the, in the Gospels, you know, when he went into the, the temple and his anger over, over the sin and the, the blasphemy of God as, as he was to be worshipped there in a public way and how they had just, they had just defamed the name of God in the place in which should have been a house of prayer and it made it in a house of greed. God has always, always been the same. He's completely full of wisdom and power and holiness and justice and goodness and truth. And even when we read things in, in the Bible that we don't like, can we just be honest? Is it all right to be honest in church? Are there some things in the Bible you don't like? There's some things in the Bible I don't like. And I'm not going to go through that series. I mean, that's a statement of me, not a statement of this book. But there's some things I, I, I you know, it, it, it scares the living what out of me, right? But in the midst of all that God does, it is always good. It is always good. So who is God? God is spirit. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being. Completely full of wisdom and power and holiness and justice and goodness and truth. And as we come to that point, we need to understand that, that Jesus is all of that. And that's where I want to begin this morning in getting started in the book of Revelation. And we'll get started if I can somehow find where I start, left my notes. All right. That was all, that was all off the top of my head. All right. The, 
what I want to do is make a parallel between God the Father, how God reveals himself in the Old Testament, and how God reveals Jesus. Um, actually, I, I didn't proofread my outline very well. It's, it's God the Father in the Old Testament and God the Son in the New Testament, not God the Saint in the New Testament. But let, let, let's look at Isaiah chapter 44, 6, which I have in your outline. The Bible declares himself very clearly. Thus says the Lord. And that's the, that's the English uh, rendering of thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel and his redeemer, which simply says this. Who is the one who should rule over Israel? God. Who should be the one who rescues or redeems God, uh, Israel? God, the Lord God. The Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the, the last. And there is no God beside me. So as we think about God, who he is, there is one God. And there is no other God that you could even put close to him. Well, that's obviously the supreme being of this universe, probably in reference to God the Father. Well, let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. In Revelation 17 and 18, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, we have this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed... His right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the what? The first and the last. And the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. So if we're wondering who's speaking here, it's got to be Jesus. Because God, the Father, never what? He didn't die. It had to be Jesus. Jesus was dead physically, and then he became alive. And what is said of him in Revelation, unveiling this, is just like God in the Old Testament was the first and the last, Jesus is also the what? The first and the last. And, and part of that, what, what should, now, that's the intellectual thought, but what's, what's the personal thought there? If he's the first and the last, I mean, that's, that's who he is. The issue, I guess, for us is, is that who he is to me? Is that who he is to you? Is, is he the most important in the beginning? And is he also most important in the end? Is he the first and the last and everything in between? That's who Jesus is. It's the same idea. He's the alpha and the omega. And you're going to see that this next week in your life groups. He's the first letter of the alphabet, and he's the last letter of the alphabet. He's the A to the Z. And if you're the A to the Z, you know, how many words are made up between A and Z? All of them, right? That's who, that's who Jesus is. He's the same in essence as God the Father in the Old Testament. Let's look at another passage, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I kept looking unto, uh, until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. And his throne was ablaze with uh, flames, and, it, and the, its wheels were a burning fire. Well, let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. And it said, His head and his hair were like White, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, you know, we have pictures of Jesus that people put on the wall. He's got nice flowing, you know, probably brown hair, and he's somehow he's got blue eyes, and he looks like he's probably six foot two, and, you know, ha has the, the physical body of a, you know, probably a weightlifter. And, 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 you know, the Greeks... 
they really, they really cherished the physical body. And, and, and sometimes if a guy really worked out, he said, that he has the body of a what? Of a god, right? And if, if a, a, a gal was in perfect condition, he, she has the body of a goddess. You know? and, and, you know, throughout most of my life, when people looked at my body, they said, he has the body of a god. Well, maybe, maybe they never said that. Okay, but anyway, Al says that all the time. Okay, but, you know, you know when Jesus was here, the Bible says in Isaiah that, you know, he, there was nothing about him physically that would draw people to himself. And, and probably, you know, he was, he was of uh, Middle Eastern descent, and so his skin probably was not white, right? Well, what does the white represent? It probably represents, you know, purity. And then we know that with age, people become more white in terms of what's on top of their head. And that hopefully symbolizes over a period of time, people become what? They become a little wiser. And so, amen, all right. And, and, and so as you look at Jesus, he's like God in the Old Testament. He is pure. He is holy. And he's full of wisdom. And isn't that what we define God in the beginning? He's, he's completely full of wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But, you know, the whole idea, he, in, at least in, in Revelation chapter 114, and we'll see a little this morning, in, uh, this next week, but his eyes were like a flame of fire. You know, it, there's all kinds of symbolism in, in the book of Revelation, and we shouldn't necessarily be scared of that. Every symbol is used to, to present truth and put it in a pictorial way. And, and, and part of it, we don't know exactly what it might mean, but I think we can get pretty close most of the time. You know, if, if someone looks at you with flames of fire, what possibly could that be? Among other things, either, either there's a sense of accountability that they are now showing you that there's this like a parent might look at a child that's misbehaving and, and looks at them, gives them the look. Anybody ever, anybody ever get the look when you were growing up? Anybody ever given the look to somebody? Okay. But there's also a different type look. You know, there, there's a look at that when you're around certain people and they look at you intently, they seem to look right through you, don't they? I mean, they know what's going on. You think everybody else is missing. They're, they're, everyone's just kind of looking around, and then all of a sudden someone looks at you, and they look at you with that knowing look. And that's how God was in the Old Testament. And that's how we're seeing Jesus in the book of Revelation. The one that's pure, he's holy, he's wise, and he, he has that penetrating look. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, we have these words. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. So as God defines himself in the Old Testament in his oneness, he is the Lord of lords. He's the God of gods. And, he, and that's in comparison to all the gods of the world that, that uh, try to bring up counterfeits. And God says, look, in the midst of all that you see, I am the God. I am the Lord in the midst of all the lords. And how will Jesus come when he comes again? Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. That very familiar verse that here's where it's at if you wonder where it came from. Revelation 19, 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of what? Lords. 
So as we look at the book of Revelation, we're going to draw some pictures of Jesus. And when we draw pictures of Jesus, we're going to draw Jesus in his fullness. And more than coming as simply a rescuer and a savior and a forgiver, one filled with mercy and, and love and kindness and compassion and tenderness. We're seeing him as the king of kings and lord of lords. The one who was completely pure and holy and comes with a penetrating gaze into people's lives. He is the one in which there is no one beside him apart from the Godhead. He is the first and the last. But, but let's even get a li- li- even more personal in terms of how that works out. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, again saying about Yahweh, um, for whom the Lord, Yahweh, loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So let's look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. As the letters to the churches are given to the angels or the pastors of the church, there is commendation and condemnation, and there is correction. The three C's are wild. And the correction is found in Revelation 3.19, in which these words are used of Jesus. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. See, as we think about Jesus, he's, he, he loves us, he forgives us. He doesn't always give us what we do deserve, you know, mercy. He gives us more than we deserve, that's grace. But he doesn't spoil us. He loves us to the point he will correct us, discipline us, reprove us. And so sometimes the things that we go through are the things that God has directly given to our lives so we might learn only the lessons we would learn if, if God would re- reprove us or discipline us. This is the picture that God wants us to see of Jesus in the revelation. Now real quickly, and this is, this is kind of, uh, for some of you it's old hat, and for some of you saying, I never even heard these words. They're... they're, they're you can, you can divide the approaches to the book of Revelation in so many different ways, right? Uh, you can focus on what's called the millennium, and people say they're either amillennial or premillennial or postmillennial. And I'm not going to talk about the day. We'll, we'll kind of see that as we go through the text. Uh, there's various ways. Like some people focus on the rapture, and they say, I'm tr- pre-trib, I'm um, pre-wrath, I'm mid-trib, I'm post-trib. And some of you are saying, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, we'll hit some of those things. Uh, another way is to, to look at it from a, just a bigger perspective. And the bigger perspective is the terms the, the, that are used among people who like to write books on, on um, the things that are in the future, what's called eschatology. And they say you can look at Revelation from a preterist perspective, an historicist perspective, a spiritualist perspective, or a futurist perspective. And we could spend a month just talking about the debates among these four camps. I, I brought up one text. This is an interesting text that I got a few years ago, and it's Revelation 4 Views, and it, it looks at every single verse in the book of Revelation from these four different perspectives. So a person will write from their viewpoint on every single verse from a completely different way of looking at it. 
Well, what are those views? Well, one is, as they look at the book of Revelation, they see it basically as a preterist perspective, is that uh, the view that events were fulfilled in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome. And they see everything happening in the past. And that when Titus of Rome came in and did all that he did, that, that really pictures what everything happened primarily in chapters 4 through 18 and, and um, some for the rest of the book. Uh, and it's all in the past. Uh, another way to look at it is the historist perspective, and that is the view that the events are an overview of church history describing various times of tribulation. And let me just say, I, I think there was a, a fulfillment, a pre-fulfillment in 70 AD in, in Jerusalem when destruction uh, came on the temple. But particularly in the Old Testament, uh, every prophecy had a near fulfillment as well, well as a distant fulfillment. And I really see that that is just part of what God did to give a picture of what he was going to do in the future. The historist view is that you basically you look at this as kind of an analogy of all of history, apart from when Jesus came, and you just kind of look at various parts in history and try to apply a section of the book of Revelation to a, a period of time. The only thing about these, you sure have to stretch things every time to, to, to make a specific application that's unique to a, a particular time period. Some see it as a spiritualist perspective, which is basically saying that there really isn't anything behind the symbols or the, the details in the book. It's, it's all kind of an, uh, uh, an allegory of, of good versus evil. So that's all we need to realize is that, that it's a good versus evil story. Or, and this is the perspective that I'm going to come from, it, it's, it's largely a futuristic uh, perspective. That, that in the book of Revelation, he, he speaks about things that were, and, then, and he speaks about things that are, and then he speaks about things that will be. And as you look at the book, the book, the, the, the big book, the 66 books, in the Old Testament, there were, there were 17 books of prophecy that were largely speaking about things were happening then but in the future. In the book of uh, the New Testament, there is among the 27 books... One book that primarily is a book of prophecy, which is the book of Revelation. And, and I think you see the same pattern here, at least I, I'm convinced of this, is that you, you have God making promises, and then he's going to keep those promises. And then he makes some more promises, and then he's going to keep those promises later on. And I think this is what we see in the book of Revelation. But in the midst of all the detail, we need to understand this among all things, that the book of Revelation is a, is a book Unveiling who Jesus is, who is to come, and what is to come. And ultimately what we need to understand, in the midst of all that happens in life, we need to understand this, is that God's people win. We're on the winning side. Peter Marshall, I think I have this somewhere written down, he wrote this. Because as we go through life, and this is part of the struggle in the book of the Revelation, and also as you think about God being good and great and sovereign and in control and all-powerful, then you say, well, then, God, why have you allowed these things to happen to me? If not to me, to my loved ones. And if not to my loved ones, to the world at large. How can you be in control when everything seems to be out of control? Or in the battles that you try to, to, to uh, uh, that you're involved in, it seems like you're losing more than winning. Have you ever, have you ever gone through a period of time where you seem to be losing more than winning? Well, here's what Peter Marshall says. Well, I think it's a great comment on, on trusting God in the midst of, of all that has happened. And we can go through various periods of history and seeing all hell breaking loose on God's people. And you're saying, where is God? 
and that could be on a more global perspective or on a or more personal perspective. And you're saying, how can God be in control when all these things are happening? We seem to be losing the battle rather than winning. And all you, if, if you're not convinced of Christians many times facing it, just read Christian blogs. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, it seems like some Christians are so preoccupied with politics. And, and, and we ought to be involved, but, but God brings people up and he brings them down. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, that we don't understand what he's doing behind the scenes. But here's what Peter Marshall wrote. Better to fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. Remember that one more time. Better to fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. Or to put it in more simple terms, and this is the Christian life, it is better to lose a few battles if you're convinced you're going to win the what? The war. Isn't that true? So as we go through life, that's, that's the message here. The people that day were going through great persecution. The people this day, you go to various parts of the world. I was just reading a, um, a study that there, there are more people that died for the cause of Christ as martyrs this year than, than just about any year imaginable. You know, we, we don't necessarily always see that because we're right next, right next to it. But it's better to be on the side that ultimately wins than the team that seems to be winning at the moment. Have you watched the Green Bay Packer game against the... I mean, they had that game won, and, but they didn't win, right? They were dominating. But the only team that wins is that at the end of the game has more points than the other team. And so we will lose some battles, but we're going to win the war because God is in control. All right, that's the introduction. Um, now the message. I said the message is going to be short. It's part of what we've already even shared it today. What will we get in Revelation? Number one, we will get to know Jesus and his fullness. So Revelation chapter 1, we're just going to read six verses, and I'm not going to make a whole lot of comment on it. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. The revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ. And again, I'm not trying to be picky here, but the reason I say it's the revelation, because the preoccupation is unveiling who Jesus is. I mean, obviously there are revelations in the book of Revelation, but the purpose is the revelation, singular, because it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And, and so basically you have Jesus unveiling himself. So he has the message, gives it to an angel, which is a heavenly messenger, and he gives that to an earthly messenger, which is John, who then gives that message to us. And the message, the focus of it is unveiling Revealing more completely Jesus. And that's what the book's about. And so hopefully, as we go through this book, we will know more about Jesus in his fullness because of our studying of the book. Secondly, we will get to know how to receive God's blessing. When people sneeze, often people will say what? 
I usually say, get away from me, all right? But if someone sneezes, you know, God bless you. You're, you're trying to, and, you know, often I don't say that, and people look at me, aren't you? You're not very spiritual. You didn't say, God bless me when I, when I sneeze. Well, maybe I'm not that spiritual. But anyway, the, 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 often the reason I do, because so, sometimes people use it almost as a superstition. You know, if I say, God bless you, it used to, historically that phrase came from people who thought they were chasing away the demon of sneezing. And so they said, God bless you. You probably will never say, God bless you again the rest of your life. But anyway, you know, God bless you is more than helping you when you sneeze, right? I hope you understand that. Is that there's much more, and the word blessing means God's favor, God's provision, God's help, God's communicating to you his sustaining strength. And let, and let me just tell you, you only need God's strength when you are what? When you're weak. Isn't that true? I mean, if everything's going great in my life, I don't need God. At least I don't think I do. But when I'm at, at my point of need, that's when I need God's blessing, God's favor. Well, how do we receive that? Well, what does he say in Revelation 1-3? Blessed, favored is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Now, in your small group this week, you'll, you'll wrestle with this a little bit more. There are actually seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. You'll look at them. But here he, he gives a very simple thing. If you want to be a blessed Christian, it's pretty simple. You, you need to read God's what? Word. Now, he gives a specific problem to this promise to this book. But you can look at Psalm chapter one, uh, Psalm 1. How blessed is a man who's not walking in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's, that's the person who is blessed. If you want to receive God's blessing, uh, it's, it's, it's not mysterious. You've got to read God's word. But he doesn't stop it. Not only you've got to read God's word, you, you've got to keep God's word. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear. So you can, there's a couple different avenues by which you can get it. And one reason we emphasize small groups, and, and, and small groups, some, yeah, sometimes it takes work to get the small group. You, you know, it's a priority. But you get a blessing, and then you give other people a blessing because you're doing it together. Blessed is he who reads God's word, hears the words of God, and then heeds them, or you could say keeps them. And so for this book, we're going to be seeing that we can be blessed by knowing more about God, hearing more about God, and say, how can I put this into practice? Does that make sense? So we want to, number one, we want to know more about Jesus in his fullness. We want to know how to be blessed. And then, thirdly, we'll get to know who God's people are and their purpose. I, throughout life, I want to know more about God. I want to know more about myself and the people around me. I mean, the most important people on this, things in the, on this planet are people, right? And the more we know about ourselves and other people and what God can do for them, the better off we are, right? So I want to know Christ in his fullness. I want to know how to receive God's blessing, and I want to know who God's people are and their purpose, very plainly. Verses 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's probably in reference to God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, which is probably a reference to God the Spirit. Uh, and verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is in reference to Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so some names of Jesus are put there. 
to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And isn't that a great statement? And that's who Jesus is. Uh, we all have a sin problem, and Jesus is the one who came to get that sin problem dealt with because he loves us and because he has the authority to do that because he's the king. And then verse 6, and this is what I'll conclude with. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. And for what purpose? To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Who are God's people? We are subjects of his kingdom. We're on his team. We're part of his family. We're going to be part of his rule. Another place said we're going to be involved in ruling with him. To his kingdom and, and priest. Now, you know, that, that's, that's a label I, I never use myself. I don't say, hello, my name is not, uh, Priest Mike. I, I sometimes, because I just say my name Mike, people go, what Mike? There's uh, thousands of Mikes, right? So I'll say Pastor Mike. I never call myself Priest Mike. I, I could but so could you, which means you can go directly to God. You don't have to have anyone in between you on that. You can serve Him. You, you, you can be intimate with Him. You can be part of His program. And, and so as we go through this, it's not only what God is doing, but also what He wants us to do as His servants, as His priests, as His ambassadors, as His representatives. I guess to put it this way, every time we come to a place like this, we ought to remind ourselves that, you know, this isn't a spectator sport. You know, we're participants. God has called us to be and then to do. We, we are part of his kingdom. We are a priest. We are a servant. We are an ambassador. We're a representative. And it's all for his glory so that people can see him more clearly. Because what does it mean to live for God's glory? To, to people who show and tell who God is in our attitude and actions with our lives and with our words, right? That's who we are. So as we go through the book of Revelation, that, that's our goal. We, we want to be ready to learn more about Jesus and his fullness. We want to we learn how to be more blessed by God. And we want to know more about who we are and what we are to be and to do for him. Let's pray. Father, I just pray for each of us that, that have come this morning, that we might hunger to know you and your plan. In the midst of the complexity, help us not lose the simplicity. And in the midst of the questions, might we not realize there are so many answers. And Father, if there be anywhere here this morning that doesn't know you, I pray that they might make that step to say, I want Jesus to live in me and to lead me. I, I want to really believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. And I want to turn from my sin and trust you as my Lord and Savior. And for those of us who, who already made that step, might we live it out in more faith and commitment because of our time spent together in this book. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.